The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thanks very much to Father Change for inviting me to speak to you here on this uh, important subject. Uh, you've just heard from my bio, or you've seen it, that uh, I'm an English author. Specializing in 19th century romantic literature, also literary theory, but not technology. Um, and in those fields of both 19th century literature, which is the colonial period, and in literary theory, uh, post-colonial approaches to the subject are basically the dominant ones. They've been that's been the case at least since 1980 or thereabouts, increasingly so, um, ever since Edward Said's uh, book, Orientalism. Uh, that's been the case. In fact, in many universities, most of the PhDs that are being churned out uh, bear some relation to that topic of colonialism, post-colonialism, that sort of thing. And this narrative of oppression and colonization isn't just an abstract academic subject for people like me to while away our time. Uh, some people think that, um, but it's. Uh, I think we've also seen that it's an intensely practical field as well, insofar as it's now being brought into the field fields of, of education and politics and jurisprudence. So the legal profession is being motivated by this and changed by it, and the role of government has expanded into these areas motivated by that as well. So there are... Uh, Officers and offices that take care of these particular concerns as well, even at this university. Uh, and that would not have been the case 30 years ago, for instance. Uh, and there's almost no area where it's worked its way into activist involvement. And I don't know if some of you are actually employed in that field. I don't know that. But I'll hear from you after, uh, and we'll get to talk about those sort of things. But given that fact, one of the more frequent objections presented to Christians in our day is that their faith is itself the root cause of the oppression. It's the root cause of sexism, it's the root cause of slavery, it's the root cause of the suppression of minority rights, and I could go on and on. It's a great reversal for Christians. Everything that we Christians would say to be good and in accordance with God God's will are, in fact, by this account, evil. And by that account, God, our God is not good, as Christian traditions will put it. And that's precisely because he's a sort of imperialist tyrant who crushes all differences, everything other than he is. This is the narrative of uh, alterity, to use the technical terminology. Uh, or the other, which forms so much part of feminist discourse, post-colonial discourse, queer theory, you name it. There's a whole web of oppression. Some of you were probably taught that in your first year if you're in sociology or politics, various studies. There's a web of oppression, and at the heart of that is somebody who looks a lot like me. Um, now, let me talk about myself briefly. You heard my bio, but the bio doesn't really sum it all up. Uh, about me, but I, I, I think on at first glance, at any rate, I probably look like the uh, the epitome of oppression. I'm an evangelical minister. I look white. I grew up in Canada. 
I had two parents. Uh, I had a pretty good education. These are all true. Um, but that picture of me is a little bit more complicated than that. And I just want to speak about that ever so briefly. Because I didn't grow up a Christian. I wasn't a Christian my whole life. I wasn't brought up in evangelical. I did go to the United Church uh, for a brief period until I was 12, got confirmed, and then said, that's it, I'm done. Now I've, you know, I've been done, and now I can stop going, which I did. Then do. Um, so I haven't just assumed that Christian faith is true, and I've never thought about the matter. As uh, was said at the outset, I became a Christian later on in life. I was in my mid-late 20s. In fact, I was in the first year of my PhD after I'd been given a full scholarship uh, to study literary theory under one of Britain's most for- one of the foremost deconstructionists in Britain. Now, if you know anything about literary theory, deconstruction is rooted in the opposition in many ways to the Christian faith. And I was under his supervision and I was about to work with him and then I gave my life to Christ that year. So these things were challenging for me and I didn't do it without thinking and it, it was not without considerable uh, challenge. So that's the first thing I wanted to say is that uh, it's not just according to appearances. The second thing, and this is even probably more uh, surprising, is that uh, I have native status. You wouldn't have guessed that, but look, you're not here at all. My mother was given up for adoption when she was an infant, and she didn't even know it. She found out that she had been given away when her adopted parents died, and she looked through her mom's personal effects of who she thought was her mom, and found out that's not my mom. That's my adopted mother. She would, her parents never talked to her about it. Um, and there was a, and she looked this up, it disturbed her, as you can imagine, she felt like she'd been betrayed. Um, probably a bit unfair, but the feeling is not unfair, you can understand that. And she found out effectively that she, had, she was orphaned from her own background as a consequence of that. Uh, and you can see that on her, actually. It still hurts her this day. Uh, and there's probably a sad backstory there, but her birth mother, would, whom she looked up and found, wouldn't talk to her about it. Wouldn't tell her who the father was. Um, but I have I carry a status card, so I am actually uh, native. Now, I don't look native, and when I get asked about it, I say that even my white genes oppress me. <laughs> so this is the impression. You know, I mean, look native, but there you go. Um, so just a little bit about me. As I say, that there's, the, there's the appearance, and then the reality. Everyone's story is a little different on these things. Um, but the first thing I wanted to point out here is that the Christian church and the uh, reputation it's been settled with isn't necessarily as you've been told. It's not just as it appears. And the way it appears is usually how we read about it in history books and in textbooks, and very rarely from Christians themselves, and very rarely from an unbiased perspective. Well, that's because there are no unbiased perspectives. But from the very beginnings of the Christian faith, 
the church has been identified not with oppressing, but with being oppressed. With receiving terrible oppression and persecution. In fact, the word martyrs, which was used of the early Christians, was used to describe men, women, and children who died because they were Christians. They are called martyrs. Now, this word martyrs um, is the Greek word for signs. It's the word that means sign. It's not just an arbitrary association. The word martyrdom is used a lot these days. Everyone's a martyr for something. You know, it's a sign pointing to something. But in this case, the sign and the word is very, uh, not just very specific, but it's very appropriate. Because they gave their life up at the hands of their enemies. And this isn't just uh, random. This is characteristic of the early Christian experience. And not just the early Christian experience. There are more martyrs in the 20th century than there were in the previous 19th century. At the hands, at Christians at the hands largely of atheistic regimes, by the way. And in our day, uh, largely at the hands of Islam, which the media speaks very little about. But I say that there are martyrs and that there are signs and that this word martyr sign is very particular and very important because um, Christians are not called uh, to testify about God only through their deaths. It's not a sort of a death call. Point, tell the world that you're a Christian by taking your life or something like that. It's not that. After all, Christians are also called to witness uh, who God is through the preaching of the good news of the gospel. Right? That's what we're called to do. We're also called to show the world who God is by the way we love one another. Those are things that we're also called to do. But the universal symbol of the Christian faith isn't uh, a couple embracing you know, we're to love one another, but you don't see a picture of a heart or a couple embracing. That's not the Christian symbol. And it's not the Bible, although we talk about the Bible. That's not the universal Christian symbol. Uh, it isn't magnificent church buildings, although they're all around the city and around the world. It's not Christian art, although it's magnificent as well. It's a great treasury to the whole human family, I would say. And it's not even the manger scene. That's not the Christian symbol. The Christian symbol, above all others, is the cross, which is a symbol of an excruciating death. And this symbol is very appropriate, because um, the cross was the state-sanctioned means of execution in the Roman era. It's not just a killing means of killing, it's the state uh, sanction means administering the death penalty. And it was only used for capital offenses. You would get the cross for rape, you would get it for desertion, or you would get it for treason. Now Jesus didn't rape anyone. He didn't desert from the Roman army. He was being put to the cross for treason against the state. That's what he was crucified for. Now this is significant. The conflict between Christians and the state and the state oppressing and killing Christians is almost the story of human history. Let me talk about Jesus' death just briefly for a moment. Uh, Rome crucified their Jewish victims naked. You didn't do this with all victims. You wouldn't get this from religious art, by the way. 
because they always have Jesus with a loincloth. Well, um, in as I say, Jewish victims of crucifixion were crucified naked because Jews weren't like the Romans and the Greeks. They didn't run around naked. They covered themselves up in accordance with uh, biblical law. So the Romans would crucify their Jewish victims naked to humiliate them. Jesus would have been crucified naked, publicly. He would have been humiliated, he would have been shamed. What could be more pitiful than a man without clothes, nailed to a cross, with his enemies spitting upon him, his friends having abandoned him, having been scourged? What could be more of a symbol of defeat, of shame, of guilt, and of weakness than that. And yet, Christians say that at the cross, that's where God triumphed over the state, over the powers, and the principalities, and over sin, and over death, because he didn't just die at the cross, he, he rose from the grave three days later. So that cross is a, a, a sort of a symbol of the whole event of the death at the hands of the state and the powers that be, and yet, it, through the weakness of God, his triumph over that. So his suffering and his death are highly significant to the Christian faith, and therefore the martyrs that I talk about are signs of that. But it's not their it's not their power; it's their give, being given up to the powers that be that characterizes them. I'll bet you many of you never do that. Now, I did ask, I don't know if it's, we've got it here or not, um, for certain passages to be read. We did, but we didn't do it before. We didn't put it up anyway. I'm not going to read them to you, but if it's up there, um, there's a passage in Hebrews uh, 11. Is that, that one? Yeah. Yes, it is. I'll just, I won't read it for you, but you can read it. This passage makes something else abundantly clear. Even in persecution and death, God's righteous judgment is being revealed. It's not because God, because uh, um, Christians always win every battle. You know, they crush their enemies. It's because even in their deaths, something is being signified. The victory of the cross. And it, will, it is God who will repay their enemies. The Bible says, vengeance is mine. God says to his people, don't you avenge yourself on your enemies, I'll do that. And the witness of human history is precisely that that has happened. Even when Christians have been persecuted, and for the first three centuries, folks, um, they were brutally suppressed. Brutally. They could not meet publicly. They were... Famously, I think everyone knows about the gladiatorial games. They weren't just killed there. Uh, they were violated sexually and so forth by animals, among other things, torn apart. I mean, awful things happen. The records are uh, not much mentioned in our day, but they are there to be read. But even in the persecution of the church, what, what happened was the church still grew. And it grows to our day, by the way. You don't read about this in the newspaper. The church is exploding in China. 
and in Korea and in the Middle East, in Africa, South America. The church is exploding. Some places you never hear about it, but it's it's there. The reason you don't hear about it is because it's underground. To become a Christian, to publicly identify there is a death sentence. But they, it is growing, I can tell you that. And there are others who will be able to testify to that place. But they are in the midst of persecution in those places. It's a famous saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's because just as in the event where, where Jesus appeared to be defeated, where Christians have been apparently defeated, the church has continued to grow. In fact, it almost seems to have grown precisely because of persecution. There's something about that witness and people holding on to their Lord and not being willing to renounce their faith and being executed for it, which spreads the truth of God's victory over the powers of the world. And to this day, the Christian, and now in, in our day, the Christian faith is the largest religion in the world. Never mind what you hear in the media. The media is not unbiased. Let me give you four arguments against the narrative of oppression. I've given one of them. The first one is that, and it's the key one, it's that Christians are called to love their enemies and to bless those who persecute them because that is what Jesus himself did. When Jesus was crucified, while he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what he said. While he was being crucified. And the fact that he was being crucified was something that he not only predicted, he said he came to do. He came into the world to die for those who would kill him. The sinners. So that's my first point. Jesus suffered and he was oppressed for us. <coughs> Secondly, uh, the forgiveness of our enemies is what Jesus also taught. He didn't just exemplify it, he taught it. Because we are saved solely through God's grace, Um, because uh, we are saved solely through God's grace that is through his atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross it has a consequence it means that we cannot please God through things that we do we can't manipulate him we don't have to shut others up we don't have to say, you have to be a Christian. We cannot coerce people into being Christians. It is not the Christian's mandate to tell the world they have to be Christians in order to be good people. That's not what the gospel is. Did Jesus coerce us, compel us to be Christians? No, he went to the cross for us. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a sacrificial lamb. And now he reigns as that sacrificial lamb. Similarly, Christians are not called to coerce or oppress others into the faith. We're to witness and testify to the fact that our Lord was an atoning sacrifice for us. And we believe in him. And we talk about him. And we seek to love and serve others following his example. Just as he taught us. 
Jesus charged his disciples to follow the example he had set. And I quote here, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. That's Mark 10, verses 43 to 45, if you want to look them up. That's my second point. Third point, I would argue that this mandate largely characterized the church throughout the ages. Now, I know there are instances where that is not the case, and we'll talk about them, probably talk about it more in the Q&A, I suspect. Um, But let's just take a few minutes to do a brief history of 2,000 years. I imagine it's going to be brief and necessarily uh, superficial. Uh, But as I said, Jesus himself, our God, uh, came into the world to suffer persecution at the hands of his enemies, abandoned by his friends, given up to death, sent by the Father to give himself up to death for the sake of us, sinners. And we know from Acts uh, 8, which is the biblical uh, book that follows the four Gospels, that just as Jesus predicted, the church, that is the people who called him, would also suffer the same way that he did. And that's exactly what happened. The church began its existence by being terribly persecuted. And as I said earlier, and they had to go underground largely uh, for the next three centuries. And we know that in the early years, Christianity made many converts. And it did so among all ages, classes, and nations. Not just the Jewish people, but it went out into the whole world. And it did so particularly amongst the oppressed and the poor. Christians are famous for going out into the streets and picking up babies off street corners where they've been left to die. They look to the, they look to the weakest, and they look to them as those that they wanted to rescue. They saw them as their particular calling. Even though they weren't their own children, they adopted them as their own. They went into prisons. They went to where the sick were. Where, you know, where places where nobody wanted to go, that's where the Christians went. And they spread. They elevated women to full and equal membership in the body of believers. Unprecedented throughout the ancient world and to this day. What other religion has women with equal status? Equal moral status. Unlike the Quran, the Bible was also translated into different languages taking on different cultural nuances and context in the process. Why do I mention this? Because that is actually important. Uh, in Islam, we get Arabic culture being imposed on the rest of the world. The Quran is not translated, right? It's only in Arabic. We get Arabic tribal culture of the 7th century being presented as Islamic culture to this day. Christian culture, on the other hand, varies from nation to nation, from language to language. There's a unity there, but there's also some diversity there. And that's, again, an aspect of the non-oppressive nature of the Christian faith. I'm not saying it doesn't have any uh, strictures or doctrine. I'm not saying that. I am saying that there is a remarkable flexibility there. It is a kingdom in the midst of the powers of the world, but it's not 
a tyrant like they are. And all kingdoms are tyrannic, I would argue. And I'm going to. Some say that 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 view of the church changed when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire in 324 AD, which he did. Some say that. But other scholars, and more recently, uh, scholars argue that the reason he did so wasn't a power move, it was because Christians were the most willing public servants. Because they because they served not Caesar, remember they wouldn't bow any to Caesar, because they served not Caesar, but they served an eternal God, and they were looking forward to an eternal city, um, they were not corruptible. They were willing to serve because that was what they were called to do. That's what Jesus did. That's what they were going to do. Who were the best public servants? The Christians. And by this point, most of the city of Rome was Christian. So when he announced the Roman Empire is now Christian, this is not an act of oppression. It's an acknowledgement of this is the only way to save the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was corrupt as could be at this point. There were constant uh, killings of the Caesars. Uh, Rome was falling apart through corruption, uh, through perversion. It's argued that venereal diseases were so rampant in the Roman Empire that most people were impotent. They couldn't have children. The Christians briefly prevented the implosion of the Roman Empire. But that was only for a brief period. It's about 80 years. And then Rome was sacked. The barbarians came in from the north. Less than a century after Constantine made Christianity the official Roman religion, Rome had been uh, sacked, as I say, and Christians were, of course, blamed for that fact. Oh, we departed from the old gods, and this is what happens. And in response to this, St. Augustine, one of the great uh, thinkers in the Christian faith, argued that uh, God's kingdom on earth wasn't like other kingdoms. There were always two cities. His work was called the city of God. There was a, an earthly city which acted like the world does in a coercive fashion, in a tyrannic fashion, and then there was the city of God which was right in the midst of it. You could see the city within the city. And that city could never be removed. But he argued that this was the case, that these both were at work at the same time. Uh, when the, the year he died, his own city, where he was the Bishop Hippo, North Africa, it fell to the Vandals. Uh, this story of Christian uh, protectorates, uh, kingdoms, whatever, falling to pagan forces was the history of the Christian world. We get this sense that the world was Christian all the way up until the Enlightenment or something like that, and it's through office. This is a terrible view of history. It's so superficial. Um, I can't tell you, but Christian uh, countries were constantly being invaded by non-Christian uh, countries, by non-Christian peoples. In the 7th and the 8th centuries, uh, the Saracens from the Mediterranean um, conquered territories around all around the, the Mediterranean. Uh, in the 9th and the 10th centuries, we had the Vikings. They sacked the, the northern parts of 
Europe, not just the northern parts, either also in the south. These were not Christians. Um, following them, the Arabs, under the sway of Islam, conquered the whole of Christendom virtually, all around the Mediterranean, the Middle East, North Africa, parts of Spain, and they pushed all the way uh, to the gates of Vienna. Um, the Turks, which followed in their wake, did exactly the same thing. Georgia, Armenia, the Christian Empire of Byzantium, this, they all fell under non-Christian sway and brought with them the ideologies that went with that. So the history of Christendom is a, a history of being conquered by, by non-Christian peoples. So, and throughout this time, missionaries had barely begun to bring about the consequences of the Christian faith to the areas of Europe that they were in when fresh pagan influences would come in and invade and disrupt the work and usually throw violence and oppression. And when, it, when they did so, that those who were in the positions of power, they would say, give reasons why the Christian faith shouldn't apply to them. Oh yes, that's fine for the people, but not for the nobility. That was the case throughout the Middle Ages, when kings would call themselves Christians, but they wouldn't act like Christians. And there was, the, there was an understanding that the firstborn of any king or nobleman would go into, would become a, a soldier, and the secondborn would go into the church. And that's because the nobility regarded their role as something that had, there was no Christian consequence to it. And so the nobility, those in power in Europe, largely were never converted. And yet, in spite of that, slavery was eradicated from Europe. The historian Rodney Stark observes that in ancient Rome, and quote all other contemporary civilizations, slavery existed everywhere. But among all major faiths, Christianity was unique in evolving moral opposition to slavery, and in about the 7th century, serious religious opposition to it began. By the 10th century, slavery had disappeared in most of the West. Lingering only on the frontiers. Now, this may sound surprising to you. It's also extraordinary. Slavery has existed as long as uh, humanity has existed, and it's back with a vengeance in our day. But slavery was abolished from the whole Christian West by the 10th century. Now, this didn't come without struggle. The emperor Charlemagne in the 8th century not, not only had to deal with slavery happening in his midst, he also had to deal with child sacrifices by the pagans in his midst. So this monolithic view of Christianity um, is one that we really need to question. It was never the case that Christians had their own way, even in places that were called Christian. Christian Europe. Christian Europe was never wholly Christian. And I would say in view of that, uh, when people say that uh, Christianity, Christians never acted like Christians, there is a response whereby one could say uh, they never had the opportunity because Christians have always been attacked by non-Christians. And the miracle is that the church survived at all. In the 20th century, in the Soviet Union, churches were used as latrines. And the clergy were put in execution and concentration camps in the millions. Same thing happened in China 
and elsewhere. So the miracle is that the church even survives in the context of that, let alone charging it with every historical ill of those in power. As I've argued, those in power very rarely acted like Christians, let alone even said that they were Christians. Nonetheless, in spite of all that, we can see the Christian foundations of Western democracy, that it was a Christian empress by the name of Theodora in the, the 6th century who granted women legal protections according to Mosaic law. They had legal protections. They had inheritance rights. Um, they were Their personhood was respected by the law. You couldn't just do with the woman what you wanted to do with them, which was the case under Rome. In Rome, the father had absolute power over everyone in his household. He could put anyone to death. Not anymore. And the principle of the moral equality of every person before the law was spreading. People had private property rights, and there was a separation of church and state. Uh, this is the point I want to get to here now. There was a separation of church and state based on the Christian understanding of the importance of the incarnation and also of the nature of Christ's kingdom on earth. As Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's in the world, but it's not of this world. It's different. In the same way, our understanding of who Jesus is is really important for the separation of church and state. So this is the fourth point, and this is a really big point. Uh, this is the fourth, and I think uh, another very powerful argument against the view of Christianity as the epitome of oppression. We've already looked at Jesus and how he triumphed in his defeat, in his suffering. I've spoken about how Jesus taught his followers to do the same thing, and they did so, even martyring themselves. I brief, briefly addressed the, the repeated persecution of the church and the repeated invasion of pagan powers throughout history. Let's look at this final point. The issue of the Christian faith and political power. Now, as I said, St. Augustine touched on this briefly when he said that there are always two kingdoms present in every nation. He talked about it being two cities, but the city in ancient times represented the whole nation. So Rome was the name for the whole empire, right? But it was actually also a city. So the two cities, there are two empires within every nation. So in Canada, there are two nations. There's the Christian nation, and then there's the rest of Canada. If you're from First Nations, you might say there are three. But that's another issue. So there are two kingdoms present in every nation. Whether they're called Christian or not, there's always a Christian kingdom and an aspect of it being worked out, whether it's visible or an acknowledged or whether it's not. Now, I've observed up to this point, this is my argument, that people and nations are only Christian insofar as they conform to the law of God. Where they place themselves under God's authority and they follow his example. When they follow Christ's example, then they're Christian. When they refuse to do so, when they refuse to use the, what the Bible teaches about the human life, then they are departing from the Christian faith. 
They're no longer Krishna. They're Krishna in name only. And they also have to be marked by God's grace. But I can say something more specific than this. It's in this doctrine, as I said, the separation of church and state. This is a Christian teaching, by the way. And I need to explain it, first of all, because in our day, I hear it, I, I debate on the radio, and TV, and other forms sometimes. People use this word, this phrase, the separation of church and state, and what is meant by it these days is usually that uh, Christians should have no say in public affairs. It was the reason that was used to justify removing all vestiges of the Christian faith from the public education system, for instance. There needs to be separation of church and state. Right? And when Christians talk as Christians in the public sphere, uh, it's said to them, you can't say that. Let's act as if you weren't a Christian, and then you can speak in the public sphere. But don't bring your faith into the sphere and impose it on the rest of us. If there's a separation, don't you know? But this would mean that Christians could never have any say in the public affairs of the world. They could never speak out on behalf of the disadvantaged, on the weak and the powerless. They could have no public say in that. I happen to think that that's what's happening in our country right now. The Christian view of, of the unborn will not have its say because that's the Christian view. We're not going to have that. That's oppressive. Christians understand it as defending the weakest. The unborn. Who speaks for that? But this idea of the separation of church and state, which says that there can be no public defense of the Christian faith in public, that's not the separation of church and state. That's just the totalitarian state saying the state is going to be the solution to all of these things and you have to dance to the beat of that drum if you're going to be living and working in this country. And in, and in our day, I think that Christians are being oppressed on a daily basis. I won't go into that here. But as I say, this, the separation of church and state is a, is a Christian doctrine. And all faithful Christians must hold to it. It's not that the case that they could. I think that they must hold to it. And here's why. Um, I need to stay, take a step back here. What is the alternative? The alternative is every other religious perspective. And every other instance throughout human history. It's that the church and the state mingle. And the state functions as if it were a church. As if it had salvific power as if it were responsible for health, welfare, and education, as if it had the final say on what human life was, where it begins, where it ends, what constitutes human life, what are human rights. When the state takes those mandates on itself, it acts like a church, as if it had ultimate authority over human life. Uh, and this is the case for all non-Christian religions. And for them, the world is all one great, undivided being. There is, there is a God, at least by some accounts, but he's, he's only different in uh, degree from a human being. He's not different in kind, if he is a human. And there are many gods, by many accounts. Now, 
by this understanding, which we see in everything from Hinduism to pagan Greek thinking, the only question that I have as a person is, where do I fit on the great chain of being towards every, everyone else? In Hinduism, there's a very strict uh, caste system, as you know. So you're born into that, you're stuck in it. And you're, that's who you are. You can't change that. Uh, in Hinduism, for example, God is not separate from humanity. God actually is humanity. God is the one reality, and humanity has no individual existence outside that reality. He's both hidden and manifest. He's transcendent and imminent. He is infinite and finite. He's formed and formless. He's temporal, and he's also timeless. He's above all definition, including our classification of what subjective and objective is. So God's all of these things. He's both and. There's no distinctions whatsoever. So God is uh, both known in everything, and at the same time, he's utterly unknowable. And I said he's a he, who knows what he is. It's an it, it's a thing. Just to put a he on it would be to personalize it. God doesn't have personal characteristics. And nations, and this is the this is the common view of what God is throughout human history. When this is the case, um, how does the work, the will of God, get worked out? How is the voice of God heard, and how is the will of God worked out? It's through the state. The state is the divine order on earth, and the ruler of the state is the incarnation of God in history. But the state is the means by which God speaks, so that the, the voice of the people is the voice of God. You've heard this before, this phrase. This is a pagan phrase. The voice of the people is the voice of God. So in elections, we see the will of God in history being uh, unfolded as we, and where is it leading us, who knows, but but history invariably leads us in this direction. Well, this is just paganism. And salvation, by this understanding, is the deification of the, of the people through the power of the state. So politics becomes all important. All important. Individual human rights, by the way, uh, are also sacrificed to this end. There is no such thing as individual human rights by that account. Because the state defines what a human being is. In any country which is governed by this, an individual's moral worth before the law is nil. It's totally up to the state to define it. Go to China in our day. Go to India. Go to the Middle East. Go to most countries of the world. Your life is worth whatever the government says it's worth. It's increasingly becoming the case in Canada. That the government decides what it is and it determines what it is, and that's because it recognizes no higher authority than itself. So the state has been divinized. It pronounces life and death. Um, that was the case in Jesus' day, and it was the case in the early church. They would not bow the knee to the emperor. Uh, and that's why they were killed. And we can see it emerge again in the Renaissance, when Greek thinking reemerged. We can see it even more strongly in the Enlightenment, the 18th century, 
Christian Europe, so-called. There's nothing Christian about Christian Europe in the 18th century. This is the period of enlightened absolutism. When the age of reason comes in, when, when the Christian faith is being explicitly attacked, when society is being reorganized and the kings of the day, like Louis XIV or Friedrich Wilhelm I of Prussia, are saying things like this. And I'll read this to you. This is Friedrich Wilhelm. He says, One must serve the king with life and after, with goods and chattels, with honor and conscience, and surrender everything except salvation. The latter is reserved for God. But everything is mine. That's Friedrich Wilhelm. The powers of Europe, the rulers of that day, have the same totalitarian view of the head of state determining what life and death is. Now this is in Christian Europe. But these are not Christian ideas. Because they don't separate church from state. They're taking on powers that don't belong to the state. Themselves. Now, this is the age and the context of colonialism. When the German philosopher Hegel comes to write, um, he uh, thinks that uh, the state ought to determine all of life. And it does. In the nation state of the 19th century, health, welfare, education, all of these are taken over by the state. Previously, the church had done this. In the 19th century, the state does all of this. We've got our Canadian health care system. We've got our welfare system. We've got our education system. Who runs them? The state. Who determines who deserves them? The state. This is the context not of, it, of a Christian Canada. Well, how Christian was it when it did this? Is it the state's, is it within the state's providence to determine these things? I say not. So does the Council of Chalcedon, which determined that Christ's divinity and his humanity could not be mingled. We can't be divinized. <coughs> I'm going to skip over that little bit. Um, and let me conclude with uh, a couple of examples, I think, of Christians speaking back against the oppression that took place even in the 18th and 19th century. First one you know, perhaps already, William Wilberforce, an evangelical Christian and British parliamentarian. He argued against the state that the practice of slavery was wrong. Why? Because these people were people, and all people bear God's image and must be treated as people. You cannot treat them as chattels, as if they were just things, as if they were animals. He fought for 30-odd years in the British Parliament. By the time he did abolish it, the cost to the British Empire was enormous. One, uh, 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 several of uh, historians, they can't understand the motivation for this because they said it's like voluntary econocide. The British giving up slavery would cost them enormous amounts of money. There's no motivation for it other than they thought it was wrong. That's why he abolished it. That's why Christians did in the 7th to the 10th century. They abolished it because it was wrong. Note that it was Christians that did this and that the powers that be didn't want to let it go because it let go of their power. I would say the exact same thing with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He confronted the racism of the white church in his day. He said, you're the church, but you don't act like the church. You act as if there were divisions of human 
uh, nature in our midst. There's, there are Christians, and then there are the blacks. If you read his sermons in the famous letter from the Birmingham jail, you say, you'll see that he didn't call for the abolition of Christianity from public life. He said to the Christians, read your scriptures. Neither Jew nor Gentile, black or white, all are one in Christ Jesus. He said to them, you actually have to practice what you preach and read it. He didn't say, don't be a Christian. He said, listen to what God says in his word and obey it. That's what he called for. Now that, I would say, is the legitimate voice of the Christian in the midst of a Christian culture speaking against the powers that be and yet bringing them to act as the Lord Jesus himself did. And he was no oppressor. That is the context of his day. It remains the context of our day. I would think it is the context of the church throughout history. There has always been two cities and there's been a war going on and Christians... Real Christians have always been arguing against the powers of oppression. And sadly, at times, they have capitulated and been a part of that. But they have done, when they've done so, they've, they've not followed the words of their own master. Let me finish there, and uh, we'll take your hand, right? So we're going to have a time of Q&A now. Um, so what we're going to do is if anyone has a question, they want to come forward to, to ask that yourself, um, we'll form a line over here, and um, I'll bring this over so we can have your question heard. Um, we'll also, I'll also be reading out um, once in a while some of the questions that have been texted in to that number. And, um, yeah, so feel free to come up, ask any questions you have. If you want to make a comment, that's okay too. Um, but just please be respectful. And, uh, yeah, thanks. Okay, so I'll read out one of the first questions from the uh, sure. So the question is this, you say that the separation of church and state is required by Christianity. But that states that states have been taking on authority that are not theirs. How then should an ideal government in our day be run? Well, first of all, the there is a place for Christians in the public life. I've just argued that, um, but the Christian approach to the public life is rather different from worldly approaches to it because we don't seek to change from the top down. There is an attempt to seize power. There's an attempt to change hearts and lives. In part because we happen to know, as all of you will know if you're parents, and even if you're not, you will have seen it, you can't change other people's minds. You can't force people to do things they don't want to do. If you really want transformation in the country, politically, socially, otherwise, you have to change hearts. And so the Christian view of politics uh, invariably involves conversion, repentance, 
setting aside yourself and your self-interest, that is the beginning of Christian political action. Until people are willing to do that and have given themselves over to that, there can be no Christian politics. There can be no Christian politics because because the view of Christian politics uh, would no longer be Christian if it were imposed like that. It just wouldn't be Christian. So, um, I don't know if I answered the question. If whoever wants to ask it wants to follow up, I'm happy to uh, do that. Anyone with questions from the audience? But there are Americans who say, you know, we need to elect a Christian president and that will change everything. I don't think it would change a thing myself. Um, because real social and political change never takes place from the top down. It happens when people are willing to do that. Because you can, I mean, you know yourselves, you can appear to be going and doing the right things when you're actually rebelling against it. You, know, you can be sat, you can sit in the classroom and um, obey the rules that everyone else follows and at the same time be undermining by texting or whatever or doing whatever you do. You're a university professor. There are ways, all sorts of ways of undermining authority. I mean, I was a rebel as a kid, so I know perfectly well. Um, you can appear to be doing the right thing and not want to do it, but if, if that's the case, then no real change ever happens. Okay, the next question that's been texted in is this. Gender roles and heterosexual normativity are an Islamic form of oppression greatly explored and taught in sexuality and gender studies. So how does the Bible saying the natural subordination of women oppose this? It's hard to reconcile that it doesn't reproduce it. What's the last bit? So how does the Bible saying the natural subordination of women oppose this? It's hard to reconcile that it doesn't reproduce it. Okay, it's not entirely clear to me, but I'll try and answer the best I can. Um, the view of the normativity of uh, male, fail, male, male, female, monogamous marriage as the context for sexual activity. Um, how is that not oppressive? I'm guessing that's the question, something in that ballpark at any rate. Um, well, first of all, the normativity in terms of the way the world acts naturally is not male, female, monogamous relationship. That's not the norm. It, there is no norm as such. If you look at people and the way they act to this day, actually, um, human sexual conduct is very, there's a broad spectrum of sexual behavior, and anyone who's a pastor will have got acquaintance with this. Actually, these days, you just have to read the papers to uh, find out the weird ways in which people express their sexual uh, identity. And uh, I'm not even talking about uh, I mean, I'm talking about somebody like Luca Mignotta. He didn't just have sex with somebody from the same sex. He chopped them up and had sex with them afterwards. If you didn't get that, that's what went on. It's terrible. Um, animal bestiality. You know what? In Germany, they just passed a law prohibiting bestiality. They just passed the law. Why did they pass the law? Because it was happening. Why was it happening? Because they were they, in the late 60s, they got rid of the, the ban on bestiality, thinking it was impossible, that nobody would ever do this, so we don't need this stupid antiquated old law that we got from the Bible. Well, now this uh, is happening so rampantly, that, and the, the mental health consequences is not for, for the people doing it as well, 
are, are huge. So is the normativity of male, female, and monogamous marriage with children in mind oppressive? I don't think it's oppressive. I think it, it prevents oppression. It is normative, I, I grant you that, but whether it's oppressive begs the question of whether oppression can be avoided if people just do whatever they want. And I think the answer is no. And in fact, uh, in our day, I think the, the sexual liberation, so-called, uh, in our midst is resulting in greater oppression. And I'm not talking about adults, I'm talking about children. The trafficking of children. The pornography industry, which is huge and, go- and growing. And who's getting exploited from this? It is the weakest, the most vulnerable. Never mind consensual uh, activity between adults. Think of people being taken from villages, duped into or coerced into prostitution, given drugs, and then their children being brought into it. Sexual slavery. It's happening in our day. Is the monogamous relationship of man and wife oppressive? I think by that standard, I you'd have a hard case to argue it. I don't think it is oppressive. And the, the run of human history shows that uh, people are blessed through that conformity to that. They are. There may be follow-up questions on that, but that's my initial response. Do we have any questions from the audience? I won't bite, by the way. Alright. I'm not sure if this was asked already. Uh, what do you think about claims of Christianity being the basis of colonialism? Oh, yeah, I spoke about that. Sorry. Um, Can you follow up on that? Okay. Um, did you come to the uh, Christianity is the basis of colonialism. Well, colonialism, I, I, I assume that we that has different phases. I, colonialism is usually associated with the 19th century. Um, the powers that did this are nominally Christian. If you look at what happens in Europe in the 19th century, you will see a widespread departure from the Christian faith by the intellectuals and powers that be. They depart totally from it, and they they adhere to a view that the state, uh, the nation state, takes off in the 19th century. The hegemonic social institutions, public education, public health, public welfare, these all come up in the 19th century. The state's taking on the church's role. That's the context for colonialism. So is it a Christian thing? I think this is just a slander. Did the church also uh, turn a blind eye to it and get involved with it? Oh, yes, they did. Were they uh, accountable for that? Oh, yes, they are. The church's hands are not clean on this. Nonetheless, this was not Christian conduct, and it can be criticized in accordance with Christian scriptures on this. So Christians are not exempt from blame on this. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying they did not act as Christians when they did. And the criticism of it and the the attempt to remedy this came from the Christians, like William Wilberforce with the slavery, uh, like the Clapham sect, and, and others like the Salvation Army, um, all of the attempts to uh, reach out to those who are most oppressed, those were done by Christians. Okay, we'll do it. Um, can you speak to 
the residential school system here. That was after the 19th century, and that was done by the church to the Yeah, Iraq. they got involved as well, didn't they? Yeah, I think it's an atrocity, and I think um, I think sometimes good things came out of it, but uh, uh, but children were taken from their parents. Um, this contradicts scripture. This is what you do to. Um, this is what the worst people in the Old Testament did to their, the countries that they colonized. They took away their kids and they educated them in their own system without any regard for the, the parents or the children. And they did so because we know better. Why? Because we're the white people. And we're rational, we're educated, and whatever. Now, there may be Christians who said, uh, and worked within that context, and uh, there are many of my major brethren who are Christians as a consequence of the society was destroyed, and this is not God's will. And I, I think there are terrible consequences, and these don't get undone overnight. And they're playing themselves out in our day. And the idea of uh, the, the way things were dealt with, um, it's terrible. I can't say any more than that. Do I agree with it? No, I think it's awful. Okay, this next question was actually directed to power teachers, but maybe you can still answer from the viewpoint of Christians in general that you're aware of. So, what is power to change for? What are Christian groups or Maybe what are you doing? Uh, currently to address the pressure imposed on others by the church, for example, towards the LGBTQ community. Particularly LGBTQ community? That was an example, so... Oh, the example given, or...? Yes. I speak against it whenever it comes up. It's not the thing that I preeminently concern myself with. It's not, it's not my particular thing. But when it comes up, I speak to it. As I say, um, the Bible gives us a view of how sexual activity ought to be um, expressed and is the best for human flourishing and happiness. That gives me no warrant to persecute people who don't act like that. It does, it does lead to me precisely because um, I love and tell them that, that activities that don't fall in accordance with monogamous marital relationships are sinful. The good news is that Jesus came to save sinners, of which I was one. As I say, I converted in my late 20s. I wasn't a virgin. Uh, I was a sinner. I am a sinner. I remain a sinner. God came to save me. He freed me from desires and things that I ought not to do. Um, but that doesn't mean there's a place for persecution. Ridicule, marginalization, that's that's far from it. But am I an activist in this area? I'm not. But I will speak to it when it comes up. But again, I, I think that there's a lot of dialogue that needs to take place in that area. Do we have any other questions from the audience? We have a pretty agreeable audience tonight. Yeah, really. <laughs> when I came here, uh, I wondered what I sort of particularly talked about, sort of reception of that. Scott, did you want to expand on any points that you presented tonight? I have a few minutes left. Mm-hmm. 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 
No one has anything else. I have another question. Scott, why, why did you become a Christian in your late 20s, as you mentioned? Um, I know I'm supposed to have a pat answer ready for that. Um, I don't think it's entirely straightforward. If you looked at my life from the outside, things were going pretty well for me. I just got a full scholarship at one of the leading universities in England. Um, and they have those who get. So, I, by that standard, things, as I say, were going remarkably well. Um, I just knew that my life was off the rails. And it wasn't off the rails in a spectacular way. So other people have spectacular stories of conversion. You know, they drug addicts or something. I wasn't any of that. Um, but there were areas where, where I certainly knew that my life was not being lived the way it ought to be lived. And I met a girl in a pub, and she talked to me about the Christian faith in the context of literature, which is what I was doing. And she invited me along to her church, and he spoke, the man who spoke there preached from Scripture, and he actually took it seriously. He didn't say, well, this is what the Bible says, but you know we know better than that, and that doesn't really mean that. No, he took it, for, took it at face value, and he spoke from it, and it just God spoke to me. Uh, is all I can say. I don't mean that I heard God say, but I knew there was a conviction that this this is what I've been looking for. I, I I can't say I was looking for Him. There was a restlessness in me, but I I got found out, as it were. That's really what it was. God found me through that girl in the pub, as it were. She brought me in and said, come on over. Come by next Sunday. I thought, oh, she's cute. <laughs> I got more than I bargained for. It's real tough. Okay, over there in the back. Yeah, um, I just, I'm just wondering, like, what gives Christianity, because, um, like, I guess Christian, Christians, they have a lot of ideals and stuff, and that's where they get their the warrant for Christian conduct is that God sets it out. It's not because Christians do it that makes it good. It's because God says it so that it is so. I think the proof is also proof of the pudding is in the eating. You find, and I, this is, goes for what I was saying about sexuality, but in other areas of life, what God uh, tells us to do when we follow it, human beings do flourish. As I say, the normal context for sexuality throughout the world is anything goes. That's the normal. Uh, same with slavery. Slavery is as old as the hills. Prostitution. These are the way the world operates. Uh, the word of God has said, this is not the way it's to be. There is, that is oppressive. Word. That should not be. Don't do that. Do not allow it in your midst. Societies that have done this have flourished. Economically, socially, spiritually, however you want to put it. Um, so Christians do it not just because they're Christians, but because 
they believe that God has told us in his word how to live. And Christian thinkers have expanded on that, obviously, um, but the, ultimately, the normative view of how life is to be lived is to be found in the Bible. And I've found that myself. I have found that. And it, uh, it, it illuminates things that I never understood before and gives uh, a, a wisdom that you can't explain other than having experienced it and lived through it. You can talk about it, you can argue it, but until you've experienced it, you don't know it in the same way. No Okay. I think when Jesus said, I am the way, can you explain what that means? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What does it mean? It means that we don't just follow um, a code, a series of words, uh, a formula, you know, ten steps to do this. We follow Jesus. Um, so he, says, he doesn't say, I know the way. He says that he is the way. It's a very strange formulation as an English professor. It's not, I know the way. I am following the way. Actually, the Buddha says that. In fact, the Buddha says, um, if anyone says that he, he knows the way, he doesn't know the way. Jesus doesn't say he knows the way. He says he is the way. Um, Jesus is, and the scripture presents this in various forms, he's our king, um, and our master and our lord. He's also presented as a heavenly husband. He's the one that we were made for. When we come into a personal relationship with him, um, we find our heart's desires met. And we didn't even know that those desires sometimes were even there until we meet him. And suddenly we find that there was a depth of desire there that we didn't know was there. As I say, I found a fulfillment that I didn't even know I needed to fill when I met him. I mean, it sounds a bit, maybe it sounds a little saccharine, but there's a deep felt longing in the heart that is met when the one who made us for him comes into our life. It recalibrates everything else. It changes the way we relate to other people. I stop trying to dominate and control everyone to bring us back to the topic here. I don't think everyone has to do what I want them to do in order for me to be happy because God has done everything for me that I need to have done. He's fulfilled all of those things and he will provide for me. I don't have to worry about it tomorrow. I'm not saying this is easy to get into your head or into your life, but that's the truth. And so you're liberated from trying to manipulate people into getting them to do what you want. So when it says he's the way, it's, it's him that's the way. Yeah, there is a personal element. Now, there's also a corporate element to that. He says that not just to an individual. He says it to the disciples who represent all people. He's the way not just for me. He's the way for all of the people that call themselves Christians. And we act together as a body, and I have brothers and sisters that work with me in the same way, following our master. Anyway, I'm sorry I went on too long, but hopefully I answered your question. Um, so, okay, we'll take that question over there. Um, sorry, before I ask my question, I want to sort of refer to the scripture. 
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.